Shrinkwrap Radio number 789, Brian Quinn, Ph.D., on depression, unipolar or bipolar. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous it's all in your head and now here's your host dr dave my guest today is brian quinn lcsw phd author of wily concise guides to mental health bipolar disorder and the Depression Source Book, Second Edition. He's a clinical social worker in private practice in Huntington, New York. He specializes in working with patients with mood illnesses and substance abuse. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Brian Quinn, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you so much for having me, David. I appreciate it. Well, I'm really glad to be speaking with you today. And we're going to be talking about uh, some of the complexities around the diagnosis and treatment of depression and its various forms. Uh, but before we get into that, tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in depression. Sure. I'm a clinical social worker by trade, been in the field for 40 plus years. Um, and back in the late 80s and early 90s, when Prozac and its cousin medications first came out, um, a lot of people I was seeing in pri- I was seeing in private practice were not on medications. And then during the 90s, many people started to come into my office who were on these medications. And after about five or ten years, towards the late 90s. I noticed that in spite of the hype, a lot of people weren't doing very well on these medications. In fact, some of them had been on two, three, or four different of the SRIs, and they just were not doing well. And some, In fact, some of them were doing horribly. So uh, I, I did some research, and I found out one of the main reasons was that many of these people did not have simple depression. They had some variation of bipolar depression or Uh bipolar spectrum illness. And it was from there I kind of got more deeply into working with people with depression and bipolar illness and doing differential diagnosis for that. And uh, I remember uh, when Prozac first came out and somebody wrote a book that was very popular that a lot of people read. Yes, Kramer, listening to Prozac. Yeah, yeah. And so... I think it got a lot of people. It it was presented almost as a some kind of a miracle drug, and I think right. a lot of people were just drawn to it. 
Maybe, maybe yes. they didn't even have a diagnosis. I don't know if right. it became like a, it wasn't a party drug, but it became something that people were drawn to exploring. Yes. Well, it, it, it soon, it and its cousins like, uh, uh, sertraline and peroxetine and all those following me too drugs um, they became very widely prescribed for anyone with symptoms of depression and anxiety to the point now where antidepressants are the most uh, widely prescribed class of drugs in the united states um, and uh, unfortunately the art of differential diagnosis Seem to seems to have gotten lost. You know, the, the physicians have, have an expression. They say all that wheezes is not asthma, because wheezing can occur in, uh, well, it can occur if someone has congestive heart failure, for instance. Um, similarly, everyone who is depressed is not simply have does not simply have major depressive disorder. Um, the, the need to do a differential diagnosis, uh, realizing that depression is a constellation of symptoms. It's not a diagnosis, and it can occur in many different illnesses. Um, and, and this seems to have gotten lost over the last few decades, the need to do a differential diagnosis. And this, this sort of knee-jerk reaction many prescribers have for anyone with symptoms of depression. They have depression gives them an antidepressant. Yeah, I want to highlight that what you just said about depression is not a diagnosis. Tell us a, a little bit more about that. Well, again, depression is a constellation of symptoms that can occur in many different illnesses. It's nonspecific. Uh -huh. For instance, if you go to your physician with a cough, he doesn't say you have a cough disorder. He takes some time to try to figure out, is the cough due to bronchitis, pneumonia, uh, asthma, um, some lung irritant? Um, in a similar fashion, anxiety and depression are nonspecific. They occur in many different disorders. And it's often not well appreciated that bipolar illness is a largely depressive illness. And if you don't look carefully at the course of the illness, um, age of onset, occurrence of episodes of hypomania, if you don't look at family history, you're going to make the mistake of diagnosing depression on the basis of cross-sectional symptoms. Yeah. Um, I don't know that anybody made that distinction when long ago, when I was in graduate school, I think depression would have been considered a... Uh, a diagnostic disorder in and of itself. Uh, certainly, I had that impression, and and I remember we learned about manic depressive illness. Is bipolar, in fact, synonymous with manic depression, or are there new wrinkles? Not, 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 not really. Um, another thing that's often not well appreciated is that before DSM three in nineteen eighty. Manic depressive illness included highly recurrent depressions and people with manic uh, symptoms. Uh, it was all part of one thing. It was only in 1980, uh, based on some data at the time, that psychiatrists split up unipolar depression, calling it major depressive disorder and bipolar, to the point where now we think that people 
who just have a with just a history of depression without mania have a different illness than those people who've had both depression and mania. And the the best scientific research based mainly on Jules Angst work, the Zurich cohort, he's been following these people over 40, 50 years, indicates that's not the case. It's very, very hard to distinguish these two illnesses. Yeah, um, Inter- interesting. I, and I want to just put in a little orientation note here that uh, potentially we have two audiences that we're speaking to in this interview. One are, is going to be people in the mental health profession, and the right. other, some proportion, probably are people who uh, suffer from either depression or or bipolar, who are right. you know looking for resources, trying to understand what's going on with them. So that right. might be something for us to keep in mind, you know, as we go along. Okay, for sure, I will. Um, to those who are um, not mental health professionals, who are patients or uh, family members of patients, um, I think the the take home point here that's so important is that um, if you or you have a loved one who's been on two, three different antidepressants in combinations with other medications, and they're not getting well and they're not staying well, one of the main things you need to look at is do they have simple depression? Very often they don't. They usually will have some form of bipolar spectrum illness. Now, of course, there are other possibilities, substance abuse, medical illnesses like thyroid. But one of the main reasons why people don't do well on multiple antidepressants combined with other drugs, I mean, I see this in my practice all the time. It's kind of what I've evolved into. One of the main reasons is undiagnosed bipolar illness. And the current science, David, that people need to know is that uh, even though antidepressants are the most widely prescribed class of drugs for bipolar illness, the science, the research does not support that. In fact, it shows that antidepressants are the wrong treatment for people with bipolar depression. You know, before we go deeper into bipolar, you said simple depression and, um, for people who are deeply depressed, though, it doesn't feel simple. So let's talk about depression a bit, but not my favorite sure. subject. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, when I say simple depression, I'm trying to make a distinction between people who have um, what we could call unipolar depression, or the absence of uh, the family genetics for for manic depressive illness or bipolar illness, and who have not had a manic or hypomanic episode and who are not likely to have one. In other words, people who just have the genetics for the depressive pole of the illness, um, as opposed to people who, um, especially young people, early age of onset of depression as um, a risk factor for the later development of bipolar illness. So it contrasts simple depression, plain depression versus people who have some version of bipolar illness or manic depressive illness. Okay, so there is a genetic component to depression, to a plain uh, depression? There's, there is a, uh, a modest genetic component to um, unipolar depression, but 30 to 40% of the variance is genetic, whereas in bipolar illness, it's virtually entirely genetic, upwards of 80%. 
of the variants is uh, genetic. Yeah, I'm going to want to dig down into that, and I think maybe this is the time to start doing that. I remember when I was in graduate school, somehow this little fat, I also taught abnormal for many years in um, at the university, and I don't remember if this is what I learned from as a graduate student in clinical psychology or if I learned it from my teaching uh, out of a book at some point, but I recall that um, it seemed like there would be a higher incident incident among uh, in, in the male line mm -hmm. uh, of, of uh, manic depressive illness. Um, is that the case? Has subsequent research supported a gender bias? Um, I'm not sure that that, that, that is held up. Um, uh, women tend to have a higher rate of bipolar two illness, which is hypomania and depression, whereas men tend to have a higher rate of bipolar one, which is the history of ma mania and depression. Um, but the 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 key the key feature really um, to distinguish these is uh, well, there's a couple of them. One is a very early age of onset of depression. Uh, in other words, what we know is from the research is that the onset of depression in childhood, adolescence, or young adulthood up to the age of 25 is a robust marker for people who will later go on to have a manic episode. Um, according to DSM, you can't be considered bipolar unless you've had a manic episode. But about 70% of people start off their illness with a depressive episode. Um, so th that's a really a key feature, perhaps more than gender, is an early age of onset of depression, along with a very dense family history of mood illness, perhaps bipolar, but depression, bad tempers. You combine that with non-response or poor response or poor sustained response to multiple antidepressants, then you start getting at the criteria. So you got to look at not just the symptoms, family history, response to meds, and age of onset. Well, getting at the age thing, I, I don't think we used to be as aware maybe as we are today of children at young ages getting depressed. No. Is that a, a new, a relatively new thing or just we didn't know to, to, to look for it and to diagnose it? Well, there was a point, there was a time, uh, maybe a couple of decades ago, where it was considered that children really didn't have the psychological or psychic structure to be able to develop depression. Well, all you need to do is go to a child psychiatry clinic and find out that kids can certainly be depressed, and sometimes profoundly and suicidally so. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of gone out the window. Um, and it used to be thought that, um, well, it, it's now known that the average age of onset of plain depression or simple depression or unipolar depression is in the late 20s. Um, the, an age of onset in the teens or before of depression, again, is a marker for bipolar depression. Uh -huh. So kids and adolescents and young adults especially with severe suicidal depression, must be worked up for the possibility of bipolar depression. It's not diagnostic, 
But the younger the age of onset, the more likely the person will eventually have a manic episode. And as it turns out, the data is onset of uh, depression in the teen years. You follow them out over 15 years, 40 to 50% of them will eventually have a manic episode or a hypomanic episode. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, what about um, uh, antidepressants and suicide? I think antidepressants are routinely prescribed, as you said, when people come in complaining of depression. Is what's the relationship to eventual suicide? Do do antidepressants help people not to be suicidal? Uh, antidepressants, if you look at the best research, it's it's sort of a wash. As as we know, there's antidepressants have this black box warning for the last several well, the last 10 years, black box warning for increased risk of suicide in children, adolescents, and young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the major reasons for that is probably is that these youngsters have a form of agitated or mixed depression, it's actually in the bipolar spectrum, um, that confers an increased risk of uh, suicide. Um, In in fact, um, antidepressants prevent suicide to some extent, but also increase the risk, and it's about a wash. Um, What's not appreciated is that there is one drug out there that profoundly, profoundly decreases the risk of completed suicide. Um, And it's been around for 60, 70 years. um, And it does so at low doses that don't produce side effects. And that's lithium. Lithium reduces suicide uh, by about 90%. Antidepressants don't hold a candle to uh, lithium in terms of suicide prevention. And this has been repeatedly demonstrated over decades uh, by independent researchers in randomized uh, controlled trials showing that lithium is profoundly anti-suicidal. And I've only heard of lithium in the context of manic depressive illness. Right. Unfortunately, yeah, that's, and people tend to be very scared when they hear about lithium. They think, well, it means I'm crazy. It doesn't. Huh. Um, lithium not only prevents suicide, it is neuroprotective and is uh, being studied as a, uh, uh, a treatment or a prevention for Alzheimer's disease. Um, it reduces uh, all-cause mortality and mood illnesses uh, by, uh, by a factor of, well, by 10 years. People live 10 years longer on it. Um, and it is the most effective drug for preventing depressive relapse, whether it's someone who's bipolar or unipolar. Um, so it's it's a, it's probably the most effective drug in psychiatry. Um, it's just that a lot of people have a tremendous fear of it um, because of its association with you know wow. profound craziness. Wow! Yeah, that, there ought to be a plane flying in the sky, you know, with a big banner <laughs> right. behind it. <laughs> lithium and, thing. Consider lithium. And, and you know, and you know why it isn't is because no pharmaceutical company can make money off it. It's an element. It's an element in the periodic chart, right, right oh, near sodium, yeah. um, and no one can make tons of money off of it. You'll see banners uh, with uh, for Latuda and uh, you know antidepressants, but not for lithium. Yeah, wow, that is really 
really fascinating. Um, and uh, in another interview, I, I heard you talk about the importance of psychomotor slowing versus psychomotor uh, excitation. Well, and give us the context for that. That sounded like the, an important diagnostic consideration. It is. Um, depression is, has classically been considered psychomotor slowing. People are slowed down, they're lethargic, they're unmotivated, um, they don't feel like doing anything, they're thinking slowly. And mania is classically been considered psychomotor excitation. People's mood is either euphoric or inc incredibly irritable. They're thinking fast, they're talking fast, they're doing a lot of things. Now, bipolar illness or manic depressive illness has classically been thought of as the alternation between periods of depression and mania. But the research shows that actually most mood episodes are of the mixed variety. That is, they contain elements of psychomotor slowing, but psychomotor excitation at the same time. So for instance, in practice, People will come in saying, I'm depressed, I'm unmotivated, but they'll have trouble getting to sleep at night because their thoughts are racing, they're agitated, and they're irritable. Mm -hmm. And this does have a profound clinical implication, which is that antidepressants are especially ineffective for these mixed depressive episodes and can actually make them worse. One study showed that antidepressants in people with mixed depression, depression with some elements of psychomotor excitation or mania, uh, are two and a half times more likely to attempt suicide as people with mixed depression who are not treated with antidepressants. And I see this regularly in my practice. People come in, they've been on two, three, four different antidepressants. They're agitated, they're anxious, they're still depressed in spite of the antidepressants. And what prescribers don't think about doing is they don't think about um, stopping the antidepressants and using drugs that are specifically useful for mixed depression. Um, and that's very important with bipolar disorder people or people with mixed depression. It's not just adding medications, it's stopping ones like antidepressants. So do you have a relationship with one or more MDs who understand these facts that you can, you know, get to work with you on the cases that you're seeing? Well, it's a very important question. And the answer is, yeah, probably one or two. It, it, it's unfortunate, but these science-based diagnostic and treatment facts that I'm talking about are not widely known among prescribers. Um, and, and this is in the literature. There was a study done just last year showing that antidepressant use has increased uh, about by, oh, by about half in people with bipolar illness. Um, in spite of the science showing that antidepressants are ineffective in this group and can make them worse. And unfortunately, it's very hard to find psychiatrists and nurse practitioners who are aware of this science. 
Wow. So it becomes okay. becomes very frustrating for psychotherapists uh, who work with mood disordered patients to find uh, prescribers who know this stuff. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, particularly when you have um, uh, sales reps calling on them regularly, you know, yes. <laughs> with yes. inviting them to dinners and various other sorts of perks that say, that uh, the drug companies offer to to physicians. Um, I can yeah, imagine I, that you I, run into considerable resistance. Yeah, I you know it's 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 funny you mentioned that I when I do these. Uh, do webinars on this topic. Um, you, you know, you have to declare whether you have any conflicts of interest. Yeah. And I always say, I always say, no, I've tried to develop some, but since I don't prescribe medications, <laughs> no one will give me anything. No, I don't get any pencils, pens, or free lunches. You know? right. Whereas um, yeah, pharmaceutical reps will come around and you know push the latest antidepressant. No one's very few people are coming around and urging people to come off of antidepressants and go on lithium. Yeah. Wow. That's, I think that's just a, a big part of the story here uh, that we're talking about. I have a personal interest in, in bipolar actually, um, mm -hmm. because uh, I believe there's a genetic component in my uh, paternal family line. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not totally clear on all the details because I didn't grow up with my biological father and uh, didn't dis didn't discover him and be able to speak to him until I was in my 30s. Oh. And uh, one of the things that I found out was that uh, he had been hospitalized for a... Um, I don't know if it was for a manic depressive episode. I suspect it was uh, for a, a depressive episode at uh, Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric uh, Institute, which I think is connected with the UC Med Center or something like that here in California, oh, in California. Uh -huh. And I think some of the content of it, well, he was a writer. And uh, I know one of the things that you've observed is that there's a high uh, percentage of of creative talent among yes. people who yes. suffer from many from bipolar. Yes. So yes. he was. Um, yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. That's it's very interesting. Um, uh, what when clinicians are doing evaluations of family histories, of course you want to look for. Uh, things like this are there indications of severe mental illness um you know a generation or two ago of course uh, people were not these things were kept secret and they weren't diagnosed but if you see a family history of people with psychiatric hospitalizations electroconvulsive therapy this should raise a clinician's index of suspicion for bipolar illness but the other thing that you just put your finger on that's really fascinating is, is the good side of this. You know, manic depressive illness um, confers creativity, risk-taking, um, um, oftentimes a very, very uh, considerable interpersonal charm and social skills. So in the family histories of people with mood illness, you always want to look for, 
are there writers, artists, musicians, uh, people with performing arts talents? Because in the family histories of people with bipolar illness, there's a much higher rate of this kind of creative talent than there is in the general population. Yeah, And I, I see this in my practice all the time. And it's, so it's not surprising to hear that on your on your paternal side, you had someone with severe mental illness who was hospitalized, but also had this writing talent. This is a very common finding in my experience, and it's borne out in the research as well. What I heard is part of the content of of his uh, of this episode was a lot of anxiety on his part that he hadn't lived up to his full creative potential. Mm. Uh, and um, and then when he got over this episode and was no longer hospitalized, actually, he went on tour. He had been um, connected to, to Woody Guthrie, the famous oh. American folk singer. Oh. And so he went on a tour uh, doing um, talking about his days and experiences with Woody you know, and doing it with a guitarist and a singer and, you know, putting on this present, this show, so he put on oh. a show. And he'd also, oh. in his early years, he had been uh, associated with uh, a lot of act, a lot of people in Hollywood and so on. Fascinating. And, yeah. And was a very charming person as you describe. And I have to say, People would describe me as a charming person if they meet me at the right time, the right circumstances. Yeah. yeah. And again, these these traits, these adaptive, positive traits uh, run in families as much as the negative um, uh, psychopathology does. That's um, you know, so, yeah. some, some, of, some of the greatest artists, composers and writers in, in Western civilization have had bipolar illness. I, I'm just reading now Ernest Hemingway's book, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Ernest Hemingway had bipolar illness, um, was alcoholic, and he committed suicide. His father committed suicide. Um, he had ECT. His his siblings committed suicide. His granddaughter committed suicide. Uh, yeah. um, so there there's this we don't want to romanticize this too much, but their their manic depressive illness does confer some very positive adaptive traits uh, along with all the pain and suffering it causes. That was one of the things I wanted to explore with you. And before I go there more, I just want to let you know that his father, I was told, I never met this grandfather, don't know much about him, but that he, I was told he died in a mental hospital. Wow. Uh, and and it was manic depressive, I think is what I was told. Wow. And we hear about hypomania. Is there right. such a thing as hypermania? Is that what would land person in a mental hospital? Well, there's everyone see everyone thinks that to be bipolar, you have to have mania. I, I have had a lot of people come into my practice saying, Well, geez, what do you mean? I, how can I be bipolar? I've never had manic episodes. But you can have had hypomanic episodes, which is below mania. People who are hypomanic are not obviously ill, and they get a lot done. They're full of energy. They don't need much sleep. Um, and they're often 
uh, very charming, uh, risk takers. They can have a very bad temper, however. But you also put your finger on another concept, uh, not mania, not hypomania, but a, a mood temperament that's chronic and long-lasting. It's called hyperthymia, hyperthymic temperament. These are people who are blessed since childhood and adolescence with high energy, uh, very sociable, outgoing, risk takers, uh, habitually short sleepers, and they're often very successful people. And it's a very common mood temperament among those with artistic talent. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and oftentimes why this is clinically important is, and it's often overlooked, if you have someone, particularly a young adult who comes in, who's depressed, you always need to look at what was their temperament like before the acute episode of depression. Very often, you will see people with these chronic, high-energy temperaments. Uh, sometimes they'll also have cyclothymia, where they go up and down prior to their more profound and clear-cut um, uh, depressive episode. Now, people with hyperthymia usually don't get hospitalized. If, he, if your grandfather was hospitalized, chances are he may have had a hyperthymic temperament out of which grew a manic episode um, or, or a depressive episode. This is very, very common. Hyperthymia, cyclothymia are the fertile temperamental grounds out of which later more clear-cut mood episodes emerge. Well, I was told he died in, in this middle hospital. And so this is going is a hospital that's no longer open. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because a lot of hospitals were closed and people were sent out into the community. And when you <laughs> got into one of those kind of hospitals, it could be very hard to get out, right? Well, once, once you had well, some kind of heavy-duty diagnosis. Well, particularly back then, the, there were very few treatments available uh, several generations ago. Yeah. They had electroshock therapy in the 30s. Uh, lithium became used in the, in the 40s and the 50s in Europe, not till the 70s in the United States. So oftentimes, people got with manic depressive illness um, were hospitalized chronically uh, or in perpetuity because you know, they could never get them well. You know, that, that was part of the problem. So N knowing what I did about this background and, and, uh, and, um, and being under the impression that it was particularly traveling in the male line, which may have been a, a, a misunderstanding on my part, but I, I have three sons now, all adults doing very well. Uh -huh. And uh, but I sat them down in early adulthood, uh, you know, and, and I'd seen them get depressed or down about one thing or another, as, right. as every human being, I think, <laughs> goes through some periods of, you know, blues, etc. But I sat them down, and I said, look, there is this genetic thing in our male line, and yes. you need to know about it so that you can uh, know that the wheel will keep turning, that if you get down, you get super depressed, you're going to come back up. And so right. you need you need to ride it out is basically was my paternal right. message to them. Right. 
Well, that's a, that's a good that's a good message. Is very often when people get depressed, uh, it feels like it's going to be that way forever. Right. You know, one of the reasons that when I started in my training um, back in the in the seventies, um, that when I when I did my training in a psychiatric clinic, the supervisors wisely gave all the social work interns uh, the depressed patients. Why? Because depression, the average depressive episode, uh, bipolar actually is quicker, but the average depressive episode lasts six to 12 months. How long is the internship? Well, it's nine months. At the end of the nine months, everyone was getting better just because of the natural history. Successful. <laughs> right. The only problem is, is that, and, and this is often overlooked as well, is we should be a little less concerned about treating the acute episode and more worried about recurrent episodes because that's the nature of the beast is these are highly recurrent uh, episodes. Um, having disclosed a, a lot personally already, I'll go a little, a little further is I have had two episodes that I would rec that I would say are on the, heading towards the hypomania that you're talking about. Both yes. were a result, aside from whatever genetic background there is, both were a result of being put on a medication. The steroid? First, huh? A steroid medication? That was or? the second one, yes, was a steroid. The first yeah. instance was Valium. I had some kind of stomach disorder. I don't remember what it was, but yeah. uh, they thought Valium might help calm my my system. And, um, and so I was taking it chronically, that is, over, and it was a low dose. I think it was like five milligrams or something like that uh -huh. that, I, that I took for some long period of time. But then gradually... I began to, um, I, I was a fan of pocket watches and, uh, and the sort of historical significance of, you know, <laughs> having a pocket watch. And then I got this idea that uh, most pants don't have a watch pocket anymore. And so I thought I would invent a portable watch pocket. Oh. And I got somebody to make a prototype for me, and I was talking about it all the time and talking up this idea that I thought was, you know, <laughs> I thought it was going to be great. And um, I think my wife, my wife has been a stabilizing influence in my life, and sure. I think I think she kind of recognized it at some point there that I needed to calm down and back off of that. So mm -hmm. somehow that happened that that backed off. More recently, I was put on prednisone yes. by my GP for uh, as the first trial to figure out why I was having uh, itching patches all over my body. It turned out to be something very different, but uh, but he thought, let's give prednisone a try. Mm -hmm. And um, gradually over time, I was becoming a poet. I had not written poetry before other than uh, haiku and dream classes that I taught, and I kind of used that poetry as a little device. But then I started writing poetry about um, family history stuff, and 
it seemed like it was really good to me. It seemed like it was really meaningful. Ran it by family members and other people, and they said, "Oh yeah, this this is poetry." <clears throat> and but I began to. Uh, I've always been a good sleeper, and I was waking up in the middle of the night and having to go write these things down. I would try to rehearse wow. it in my mind while I was asleep, or I would tell somebody about it in my dream, you know, and be sure to tell me about this tomorrow when you see me. <laughs> and of course that didn't happen. Right. Um, and I, at some point I began to realize, you know, okay, this, um, this is going off the deep end here. And right. uh, and uh, so I stopped taking the prednisone. Right. And I I had hoped that I would continue to write poetry, but um, the energy just hasn't been there to do it. The drive see, to do but, it. But you see, what happened was you mentioned that was it your father or grandfather had a talent for writing. Yeah. And when you took the prednisone, uh, neuroactive steroids like that can produce. Well, they can do it in someone who doesn't have the genetics for bipolar illness. But if you have them, those neuroactive steroids like prednisone can precipitate a hypomanic episode. And um, if it's not too bad, you can it'll it'll help you tap into those creative talents um, that are that are there. And that's that's what happened. It's just that what marks it as hypomania is probably is. Is you started to wake up in the middle of the night and do this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I've seen quite a few people in my practice, middle-aged and older, who use neuroactive steroids who've developed the first-time hypomanic or manic episode. And you look back, and they all have that family history mm. of some sort of uh, markers for mood illness and usually creative talent. Yeah, I, you know, I wish that there were a drug out there that I could safely take that would put me in that same same place. Right. But that, you know, could be moderated. Uh, fortunately, right. I was, you know, smart enough to realize, okay, I need to moderate this, and this is getting out of control. And right. nobody else told me that, but I, I just knew, you know, I am a right. psychologist. And so, <laughs> I right. could, and, but right. I was glad that you talked about the, the positive. Uh, aspects of this because it raised in my mind uh, uh, something that I wanted to ask you about, which I think you've already already really spoken to. Um, which is: Are there degrees of hypomania, and are there positive ways of adapting to it mm -hmm. and, and and making use of it? And I'm thinking of things maybe like. Well, they're acting out possibilities, probably, uh, right. maybe, maybe uh, extramarital affairs and all sorts of things like that, maybe drug use. It's, so, well, if, if you look at the diagnostic criteria for hypomania and mania, one of them is a, is a high potential, I'm sorry, there's a, a tendency to become involved in pleasurable activities that have a high potential for negative outcomes. Mm. And they are uh, sexual indiscretions, um, foolish business ventures, uh, impulsive travel, and mm. overly aggressive driving. Um, um, but again, we have to keep in mind 
that some of the greatest artists, composers, and musicians in Western civilization have had these mood episodes. Um, and it, it does confer, um, it does confer periods of, of great productivity and creativity, but often combined with periods of no productivity or creativity and profound suicidal depression. Yeah. Um, so that, that, you know, that's the dark side of it is that it, if you, what goes up must come down. Unfortunately, yeah, I've definitely used that phrase many times. Yeah. Uh, uh, had to recognize that uh, partly because uh, in the sixties I got involved with. Uh, well, there's been a lot of high risk taking in my history, uh, mm -hmm. hopping freight trains, jumping out of airplanes <laughs> for a short time with a parachute, becoming a wow. glider pilot. There you go. Um, not a motorcyclist. Uh, so all that that's, kind of stuff. Yes, and that all that's all the piece of the same puzzle. And then that, psychedelic that, drugs. And yeah. and the psychedelic drugs, uh, there was the backside for me was always deep depression. And so I, I finally just had to stop because uh, right. while the, the highs were good, the uh the the backside, yeah. I, I really had a direct experience of it and just energetically that you could have a lot of energy, you know, and excitement from a, from a psychedelic high. Yes. But I could feel the physical cost in my body the next day of just no energy and, you know, as well as the, the depressive thoughts as, as it began to come down. Well, well, that's the problem is it can, it can produce, you know, in the vulnerable individual, you can increase cycling. And, uh, and in fact, antidepressants can do that as well. And people with bipolar spectrum illnesses, um, they can actually increase cycling uh, and actually produce more depressive episodes than would occur naturally in, in the history of, of the illness. So here's what I if I can sort of pull some of this together, what I tend to see in my practice is this. A young person, somewhere between the ages of 18 or 22, maybe a little bit older, they're referred to me because they've been on two or three antidepressants. They're not doing well. Or maybe they got better and then they got worse. And they've been tried on these different antidepressants. In the family history, there are people who've been had psychiatric hospitalizations, ECT, but often people with musical and artistic talent. And very often the young person sitting in front of me has some artistic or musical talent. So they had an onset of suicidal depression at an early age with a family history, clear family history of se severe mood illness and increased cycling and non-response to multiple antidepressants. And everyone's sort of scratching their head about what, why isn't this person getting better? And, the re and they'll never get better as long as they stay on antidepressants. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons I got into this is I found doing effective psychotherapy with people who are in the bipolar spectrum who are on antidepressants is virtually impossible. You, you can be an excellent therapist, but if someone is, someone's course of illness is being made worse by the medication, it's going to be very, very hard. 
So what I've found is when I find a good a prescriber I can work with, we get the person off of antidepressants onto mood-stabilizing drugs or atypical antipsychotics. Some of them are appropriate as well. And these people do very, very well. Uh, and then, um, and then the effective psychotherapy becomes possible as well. Yeah, you point out that the effective psychotherapy uh, can take a long time uh, and uh, require a lot of work over a span of years. Yes. And, but, but it can take less time and the person will get better if they get off of antidepressants. Right. Um, that's, that's really the key. It's not just getting on lithium or Depakote or Tegretol or Latuda. It's about getting on those mood-stabilizing drugs and then getting the hell off of the antidepressants. I want to touch on, I don't know if you're up on the literature on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, uh, particularly ketamine is yes. being uh, used uh, for depression. Yes. Yes, I, uh, I'm familiar with the literature, and th there's th there are two points about ketamine and other drugs, uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, or even just ketamine in, in the right doses, um, can have a very, very rapid uh, antidepressant, anti-suicidal effect. It's, it, there's some indication that this may be less so of a case with people with bipolar depression. But because I've seen people in my practice who've been on ketamine who haven't done well and haven't responded to it, and they've all been in the bipolar spectrum. Uh -huh. But there is, there is some research on the use of ketamine with bipolar depression. But here's the thing that no one ever stops to consider. You have to think beyond acute treatment of the depressive episode to long-term stabilization. And no matter how effective ketamine may be acutely or uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, I've seen a lot of people who've had that. Oh, really? No, no matter how effective that is acutely, there is no research showing that those treatments, ketamine, transcranial magnetic stimulation, produce long-term stability. And that, that is they prevent recurrent episodes of, of depression and hypomania. And that's really where all the, the business lies with treating these people. It's not just treatment of acute depression. It's long-term stability. And these drugs like ketamine, not only is there no evidence they produce long-term stability, there's growing evidence that they may produce instability over the long run, even if they are acutely effective. Yeah, that's a story that's yet to be, you know, this uh, this uh, cultural phenomenon that's happening right now with a lot of enthusiasm about this. And I've interviewed a number of practitioners uh, uh, of the uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy variety. Yes. And and they tr all try to build into their sessions, which are tend to be short term. You know, maybe a three day session or uh, or one for a number of weeks, small number of weeks. They have come to focus on integration. How do they? How does this, this 
the insights that the person has, has had, how mm-hmm. do they get integrated into their lives and to look at, you know, things that will support that continuing. So I, I think the caution that you raise here is a legitimate one. And, and I think uh, uh, people are experimenting nonetheless, and we'll see with time and hopefully with good research. Yeah, and, what and, works people, and what doesn't. people usually turn to ketamine, transcranial magnetic stimulation, when they've had repeated episodes of depression that are not responding to standard antidepressants. Um, and unfortunately, the therapist and the prescriber of the ketamine are still locked in the same paradigm of depressive symptoms equals a diagnosis of depression. Therefore, we must give an antidepressant treatment. If someone has not responded to standard treatments for depression, or keeps relapsing, before you go to ketamine or or transcranial magnetic stimulation, you have to go back and rethink the diagnosis, that the diagnosis may not be simple unipolar depression. Right. That that's that's the thing I hope your listeners take home from this is don't make the mistake of going from symptoms of depression to diagnosis of depression to thinking that well, what, what's on the list of antidepressant treatments? You really need to think that the diagnosis through. You need to do differential diagnosis. Well, I want to close off our discussion with a, a, a general uh, question, which has to do with uh, the fact that we're living in a pretty depressing time. Um, yes. <laughs> and how are people, do you, you know, we're looking at a pandemic climate change, extreme political polarization yes. uh, on a wide scale, all of these things. Um, how's a person to cope with all that? And I suppose that could lead to, that could help to trigger maybe, you know, some deeper lasting kind of depression. Well, well, look, I, I think the important distinction here is to make, is, is to make the distinction between depression in the everyday sense of the word, in the existential sense of the word, in the sense of being a human being in a complex and troubled world versus depression that is an illness. Um, All of these modern uh, factors in someone who has the genetic vulnerability may simply, they should be viewed as triggers for a depressive episode, not as the cause. However, in the differential diagnosis of depression, we have to keep in mind that some people become profoundly depressed, demoralized, discouraged, adrift in life, unsure what to do, uh, and it's got nothing to do with biology. Um, And I, I think that's where the skills of a good diagnostician and therapist come in. Because for people who don't have a genetic vulnerability and are demoralized, discouraged, um, they need the help of a good therapist to help them discover what's truly important in their lives and to turn away from negative self-talk and rumination, not get rid of it, but turn away from it towards behaviors that build the kind of life that uh, can be meaningful to them. And 
if this sounds at all familiar, it should. These are the words of uh, uh, Stephen Hayes, Kurt Strassel, and you'll find it in acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, I think uh, that's an, an important and profound distinction to make and a good set of skills to use for people who are not clinically depressed, but are demoralized and discouraged. Well, that's a, a good wrap up. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I uh, appreciate your participating with me today on Shrinkwrap Radio. So, uh, Dr. Brian Quinn, thanks for being my guest. On well, thank you. Radio. Thank you very much, uh, so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I was a bit gobsmacked by some of the information shared by today's guest, Dr. Brian Quinn. He truly is an expert on depression and bipolar, having worked in the trenches of that specialty for over 40 years. He told us that nearly everyone who consults a medical professional for depression is likely to be put on antidepressants. The medical profession has been pretty much brainwashed by the pharmaceutical industry to reflexively turn to antidepressants regardless of the patient's age. All that literature and all those visits by drug reps and all those dinners and other perks have won the hearts and souls of highly educated professionals who should know better. Who says money can't buy love? Dr. Quinn is guided by the research which he has followed throughout his career. Much of his information was new to me. Too many professionals assume depression is a diagnosis. According to Dr. Quinn, depression is not a diagnosis, but a collection of symptoms. He says a proper diagnosis can only be arrived by taking a very careful personal and family history. This investigation should include inquiry into short periods of high creativity or productivity, which can be a sign of hypomania. Dr. Quinn reports a very large percentage of those diagnosed with depression will go on to become bipolar, especially if they are first depressed in early life. There's strong resistance among depressed patients to accept a bipolar diagnosis because they find it stigmatizing. Also, depressed patients are often misdiagnosed as suffering from simple or unipolar depression because mental health professionals don't routinely look for the markers of bipolar, which most importantly are family history of bipolar disease and or a personal history of hypomanic episodes. Research shows antidepressants are not very effective and in some cases can lead to very negative consequences. They can increase the likelihood of suicide they can also increase the rate of cycling in bipolar disease. For those who have been on antidepressants for a long time, their beneficial effects can wear off. The thing that really blew my mind is Dr. Quinn's assertion that lithium is a highly effective and inexpensive mood stabilizer. According to Quinn, lithium is equal to antidepressants in acute depression, but actually superior 
to antidepressants for preventing relapse for both unipolar and bipolar patients. Lithium also reduces suicide risk tenfold and has been found to extend lifespan by 10 years in bipolar patients. Moreover, research suggests that lithium promotes neurogenesis and may prevent dementia. Unfortunately, Dr. Quinn reports many depressed patients resist taking lithium because of associations with craziness. Dr. Quinn gets high marks from me as a therapist because in the interview, I got to experience his humane responses to my personal sharing some of my own personal and family history. I let him and my listeners know that both my father and his father had been hospitalized for bipolar depression. On the positive side, Dr. Quinn had mentioned that bipolar people with hypomanic episodes were often very charming and involved in the creative arts. A number of famous historical figures are thought to have been bipolar. My father had been a very charming and charismatic character with many friends in the theater. He also was a published author and toward the end of his life, a performer. For my part, I majored in creative writing as an undergraduate and engaged in many life-risking activities as a young person, another bipolar marker. I also shared that I have had what I recognize as two brief hypomanic periods, both triggered by a medically prescribed drug. Valium for a stomach condition and more recently prednisone for a skin condition. The Valium eventually led to a period of high excitement around something I was going to invent, and prednisone to a wonderful period of writing poetry. In both cases, I eventually stopped taking the triggering drug because I recognized I was entering an unhealthy state. Thanks to Dr. Quinn, I'm coming to accept that I have a bipolar vulnerability. Looking back over my life, this awareness explains a lot. Thankfully, I've had enough protective factors in my life not to have gone off the really deep end. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Pete from Andalusia. Just ringing to say that my partner Sue and I have been listening and learning from your podcasts for a year or so now. Feel increasingly guilty that you were working your socks off for us, giving while we were just taking. Now we can continue benefiting from your efforts with an easy conscience. Well worth a donation. Well, that's all. I just say, may your microphone never go dry, Dave. We'll continue listening. Ciao. Thank you, Peter and Sue. They're in Andalusia, Spain, for your contributions to supporting the show and for your encouragement of others to follow your example. As I've mentioned before, Listener donations are essential to keep the lights on and my energy pumping. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to my guest today, Dr. Brian Quinn, on what therapists need to know about bipolar depression. Our conversation was personally meaningful for me. Next week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Joseph Schrand about his book, Unleashing the Power of Respect the I am approach. Dr. Schrand illustrates through his patient's stories that no one is broken. We are all doing the best we can. 
with the potential to change in the very next moment. I hope you'll join us then. And until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves and others. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.